Welcome to the Fishers of Men podcast brought to you by us at So Much Media. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. I'm Lars Mara. This podcast is about relationships and your walk with Jesus. It's about the true stories of Christian men and women's struggles with chastity, sex, marriage, and relationships in a post-Christian culture. to another episode of Fishers of Men. Today we have our good friend, Paul Moorhead. We're going to talk about complementarianism and egalitarianism. There's so much controversy around this topic, but you know what? We wanted to give it a shot. Paul, why don't you introduce yourself? Hey guys, my name's Paul. Uh, <laughs> I am just a dude. Uh, I, I'm an actor and uh, I make furniture uh, and a woodworker. Yeah, lived in so LA like for about eight years. Yeah, trying, trying to be. <laughs> and uh, been here for a long time. Been really involved with the church for most of my life. I'm kind of concentrating a bit more on my professional life these days. But uh, yeah, so I, I love theology and I love talking about this stuff with people who agree or disagree, and it's fun. So I'm uh, happy to be here. Thanks. Cool. Uh, I know Paul for the last, uh, I've known you for the last four, five, whoa, like five years now. I guess four and a half, almost yeah. five. Um, we would go to Ecclesia together. We were in the apologetics group together that he led for a couple of different seasons. And I just asked him to come on because he seemed really knowledgeable about this stuff or just mm-hmm. apologetics in general. And, <laughs> and this is not really supposed to be debates or anything like that, but just conversation. We are recording from uh, Mary Ashley's apartment in Glendale. So that's where we are today. Awesome. So why don't we go ahead and get started. Um, what is your personal view or understanding of complementarianism and egalitarianism? And what informs that stance? Like, is it emotionally driven? Is it some biblical, some traditional, some cultural? All emotion. personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so you're asking to kind of define them first and then give my, my stance? Yeah, well, yeah. Or, or the other way around. It's like, what do sure. you, your understanding in the context of this, of culture, 2016, this is what it is, and then we can sure. go into a little bit more of like, these are the actual definitions. Right. So I am, I am complementarian, and, you know, if you go online or read books, what I mean, you'll find different definitions, but they're going to be, you know, similar. So, you know, an egalitarianism can mean different things in the church and outside the church. They're, you know, they're almost synonymous, but not quite, but... As I understand, complementarianism is, is that God has created us male and female, and we have complementary uh, roles. We definitely believe that we're ontologically equal. Men and women have equal value, both created in the image of God in the exact same sense of the word, equal value, equal standing, equal, equal giftedness. Mm-hmm. However, that God has designed us to be complementary, and there are some role distinctions uh, versus in the church and in the family as opposed to egalitarianism, which believes, and again, of course you'll find nuanced views in, uh, within different, different minds. Sure. But an egalitarian would say, no, there really are not any designated roles for men and women, and every relationship's different, and there's no prohibitions for women mm-hmm. to serve in any roles in the church or in a family. Uh, in a marriage relationship, you know, you might have dynamics where maybe the husband or the wife is more dominant, and so they might say, well, yeah, I mean, they kind of make the decisions in the family, not because they're supposed to, that's just our, our dynamic, where a complementarian would say that God does have a specific design and, and, a, and, a, and a version of relationships in church life where gender does come into effect. And, uh, I, and I assume that these definitions, especially on the egalitarian side, it it's more pulled from like New Testament arguments. The I egalitarian guess. view? Yeah, just because Old Testament just obviously traditionally, culturally, in the context of when those... Seems more patriarchal. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah. Um, and then the whole egalitarian, we're equal in this relationship, comes from more Jesus made everything clean, slate, like right. we're all equal. Well, both sides seem to have verses sure. that they use. Yeah. Even in the complementarianism, the it's... New Testament has sure. some... Sure. So Which I, I'm sure we're going to dive yeah, into. We'll yeah. into yeah, we'll get into that. Yeah, we'll get into that. But so um, I want to ask, so like with both, it, is there a spectrum? Because that's kind of what it seems to me. Like, so is there a spectrum with in complementarians where there's like... Oh, yeah. Okay. On every side. Okay, cool. Yeah. And I've met, you know, again, this is not something that a lot of people have studied hardcore. And you may have studied it some or have been taught something and you have your upbringing and you kind of have some... 
mm-hmm. subconscious or conscious view that mm-hmm. you kind of just live out. Yeah. And it may not even be really something you've thought about. But I think especially in couples, it's something you are faced with. And if you're in a church where it comes up as an issue, you might be like, oh, okay, I, I need to mm-hmm. think more about this. But some complementarians that are like super hardcore might believe, A, you know, women can't be in any leadership. They can't be deacons. They mm-hmm. can't speak in church at all, like literally mm-hmm. be silent, which to me is extreme versus, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm more in the, in the vein of, you know, of believing that the offices of elder pastor are designated to be held uh, by, a, by a man. So I would look at some complementarians and say, you're, you're way overdoing it or you've misunderstood. And you also find egalitarians who would say in the church, there's no role distinctions, but we kind of believe that in marriage, the head is the, the man is the head of the, the household. Mm. But in church, it's, we don't, you know, we think it's more equal in that way. And so you'll find, yeah, a spectrum on both sides. Mm. Okay, interesting. I'm, I know we have our list of questions here, but just, just hearing you speak, feminism comes into play here, yeah. right? Like it's become more and more evident in the last like 50 years and, or emerging in the last 50 years. This next question is kind of having to do with that, but what is biblical womanhood, and does egalitarian equate feminism? Or you mean you know, is it like a equivalent? Yeah, like if you are a feminist, you automatically are egalitarian. Or is there versions? I'm sure there are versions of complementarian feminists, but like, what does that even yeah. mean? I guess it's trying to define really what it is, what the definition, what is biblical definition is, uh, <laughs> biblical womanhood. Like, what does that even mean? What does that right. mean? Yeah. Because yeah. nobody know? seems to be able to agree. On the... There's plenty of books on it in, yeah. that, in that Christian um, section. But in the sense of um, our roles and not just yeah. the church, but in marriage, <clears throat> complementarianism, you, as you were saying, we have, as women, are supposed to come behind our husbands in the final decision. Husbands tend to be, like, the decision makers, even right. though on the back end, it's like, obviously, we talk about it. You know, ideally, and make the decision together. Sure. But if let's say there's a tie, you know, yeah. like, or rubber like, meets the road, yeah, yeah. the yeah. husband's going to make the call. Which right. you know, I brisk a, a little against sure. a little bit, of course. But what does that mean? Like biblically, what is what are we supposed to be doing as women? <laughs> Go. Uh, easy you have question. five minutes, and <laughs> well, well, first of all, I and I want to I want to put this out there. I'm I'm not a scholar. Like studying theology and apologetics is kind of I would hate to call it a hobby, but it's been one of the main pursuits of my life and I, mm-hmm. I love it and I certainly don't have complete knowledge about any subject and so I'll, I'll do the best I can. I have taught you know at men's groups and, and not conferences but retreats and this and that and definitely biblical womanhood has not been one of the subjects I've, I've taught sure. about, <laughs> so it's not my area of expertise but I maybe to start generally I think and I'll, I'll probably repeat this later but I think on any issue we face as Christians that's you know spiritual in nature and maybe practical but especially in spiritual in nature is to ask first, has God spoken to this issue? And if he has, what is, he, what is his view on this? Mm-hmm. And some of those issues are very clear, like we're not debating whether we should steal or not. It's pretty clear and no one is on the pro-thief uh, side of that you know, debate. But with more controversial issues, obviously there's a lot of emotion that gets involved. And I would hope that me or, or an egalitarian would both come to the issue saying, well, what did scripture say? What has God said about this issue? Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully that's that's my filter mm-hmm. is seeking to, you know, submit myself to the word of God, whatever, whatever his view might be. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to, to feminism and egalitarianism, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a complementarian feminist. Mm-hmm. There may be some out there. Why is that? Well, it seems pretty inconsistent to be. If you really are a staunch feminist, it's unlikely you're going to find yourself also being a complementarian. Maybe they're out there. I think it'll be more clear once we get into kind of what those two terms mean. Right. Egalitarianism yeah. and complementarianism, which is why right. I'm here. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, like you said, you, you, you hit on like we've grown up with a certain sense of what both are. And we've kind of grown up in a, maybe a family tradition or a church tradition where we just kind of accepted it. But maybe right. haven't done real, the real research. Right. And I've done like very little, but not trying to make myself diminutive in any way. But how can we support each other in a biblical way right. as God lays it out in his word? Right. Well, yeah, just to speak to that, I, I think so many uh, of the words of Christ and all of scripture are general just to human beings. Like human beings, this is how you ought to treat one another. This is how our relationship should be between God and man and God and woman. But there are some specific commands and encouragements through Christ and through the apostles, through the, through the writers of the New Testament books 
that are saying, hey, Christians, this is, this is what I want to communicate to all of you. Men, I want to say this to you. Husbands, I want to say this to you. Wives, women, I want to say this to you. Mm-hmm. And so I think to, to live out true biblical manhood or biblical womanhood, there's a lot of facets of that. Sure, obviously, of we're, not, we're not exploring all of that. Yeah. But I think square one is to pay attention to those and say, well, if I believe in the authority of Scripture and that it's, it's God communicating to us, I would hope that I would have a posture of humility to say, well, I'm going to pay attention to. So when, when Paul says women, this is what I encourage you to do, and men, that we pay attention to that yeah. and we'd value it and seek to understand it in context. Yeah. But so, like, where do you draw the line of thinking, like, you know, of, oh, well, Paul is addressing everyone throughout all of history and time, or he's speaking just to that community? Right. Well, that's where most of the debate comes up. Is what's, <laughs> is what's, what's just like a social, uh, historical kind of uh, local kind of teaching that maybe draws on just social customs mm-hmm. versus like authoritative, objective, eternal truth. And yeah. frankly, I think a lot of those issues that people are like, well, that's just social, socially constructed um, aren't. And some of them are. And it can be tough, but I think, you know, maybe someday I'll listen to this and regret saying this, but I think mm-hmm. o- often those really confusing issues with with just more study and more seeking to understand they do become clearer and there yeah and there are still some pretty tough passages that are hard to make ends ends meet but when i when it comes to because this almost has some crossover to like old covenant new covenant like why do we disregard these rules but we keep these and that gets again there are still some tough issues there but i think the more you explore it and learn like you know listen to good teaching it does become much clearer to me one of my biggest filters is any kind of command that's based on the nature of God himself is obviously eternal. God doesn't change, and his nature never changes. God will never become morally different than he is today. Mm -hmm. God still hates sin just as much as he did in the Old Testament. However, Christ, wrath was poured out upon him for that sin. Mm-hmm. And so his, we're kind of all about grace now, and God has always been about grace. His attitudes towards sin has never changed. However, we're in a new covenant where it's been dealt with, so our relationship to it has changed. Um, similarly, with, with men and women, our dynamics do change through culture and through time. However, as Christians, you know, we, I do believe in Adam and Eve. I believe in, in creation, that God had a, you know, a design for us relationally, and I think that's in the created order. And that does not change at the root of it. I think socially there are, there are tons of gray areas that are fine to change and, and flow in and out of. But if it's something that God has said, this is the way I've created you based on my own nature, then that's something that's going to be lasting. And there's no good reason to doubt it or to, to seek to change because the culture we're in changes. So if you want to get into it, at this point, it's a good segue into the question of the roles of men and women, biblically, regardless of the controversy. This is the basics of what God lays out for the plan of relationship between a man and a woman in marriage, mm-hmm. um, or even within the church, You're just like as we yeah. serve one another um, or serve in the church. The whole thing about women should be silent my whole life I've just kind of hated that verse just because I like I don't really understand yeah. what that is supposed to mean for me yeah. in the 21st century can we go into a little bit of what the Bible says about men's roles and women's roles yeah yeah and I'm not avoiding your question let me let me no, kind of totally fine. let me kind of like it. just as I approach this like I, I I'm a believer in like in systematic theology yeah. and I think the Bible is consistent with within itself it doesn't contradict itself so with this, like any other issue that's complex and controversial, I think, I, I don't know if I've coined this term, but I love physics, right? Mm-hmm. And I think in the spiritual realm, that dimension, there's almost like a spiritual physics where everything relates to everything and is interconnected. Like you can't mm-hmm. change the, the, the way gravity works and then say, well, light's going to be unaffected by that. They're mm-hmm. connected. Yeah. So I think with this issue, it's related to the gospel. It's related to creation. Mm. It's related to the, like literally our definition of the Trinity. Mm. And so whatever your view is, I think we, we should all hope to remain consistent. And some people have views that are, you know, X over here that kind of contradicts what the Bible says about this view over here because they're connected and they've changed one without mm. allowing it to change the other. Context, so yeah. that's hopefully how I approach it is finding unity in, mm. in Scripture and letting mm. it speak. 
Where to begin? Um, well, I've got a list of verses we can reference. Generally, I mean, I know that the this debate is far-reaching and discussions can go all over the place, but sure. there's really, there's about, I don't know, six, seven, eight passages that are often looked to yeah. uh, on this issue, and they typically have to come to do with uh, the, the requirements of being an elder mm-hmm. in a church, mm-hmm. and then there's also passages about what marriage life ought to look like. Yeah. You can pull out key phrases if it's helpful. That, sure. I think we would like that. And I would encourage any listeners, if this is something you're, you know, want to dig into more, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll give references here and I'd love to just read everything and three paragraphs before mm-hmm. and after. We don't have time for that. So I'm just going to read <laughs> kind of the main things here. So maybe just starting with the church first. Yeah, sure. There's a few passages in First Timothy. The first is uh, chapter three, verses one and two. And Paul is saying that this saying is, tr- is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of an overseer, and that word overseer is 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 pretty much synonymous with an elder, an overseer in the church. He desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. So now he's getting into these are the the prerequisites, the requirements, if you're to to hold this office. That you be above reproach, you be the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and able to teach. And he goes on and, and lists some other things. So obviously... A woman can can uh, fulfill a lot of those, except for the fact that a woman cannot be the husband of one wife. Mm-hmm. And he also uses he when he's talking about personal pronouns like that. He he calls he, and he assumes that these are going to be men in these offices. So the husband of one wife, because even to delve into that, some would say, well, then does they have to be married? So can a single man even does he qualify? And some people would say no. Mm-hmm. Some people on the far right of, of complementarians say no. It's it's you have to be a husband. How can a single man require? Fulfill that need mm-hmm. even. But the more and more you read about that, first of all, Paul was single, so he would mm-hmm. himself be disqualified, and mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that wasn't his intention because he calls himself an elder. The The actual Greek language there is is quite literally a one-man woman. So you're not polygamous. You're not with, with multiple women at a time. You're not married to, to multiple women. And there's even discussion about, well, what if you've been divorced or your wife passed? It just means you have the character of a, of, of a monogamous, faithful man. And so we would say, we'd look at that and say, well, one of the requirements that he lays out in Scripture is that you're a one-woman man. The next passage we can look at is 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 14, which says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. (laughs) Yeah, it's like super fun, super fun. And again, every verse in Scripture about anything, you can pull it apart, and there's you can have you know some pretty rigorous and and valid arguments for and against sure. what's being said. And the, the main kind of controversy here is, well, this is Paul saying, I do not permit. He's like, well, this is the way I like to do it, and so it's pretty clear. It's, there's not a whole lot of ambiguity, at least that there is there is a role distinction there. The question is whether Paul is speaking authoritatively for every church for all time, or this is just kind of his style, or that in the mm. Jewish culture, which really was very patriarchal, that would have been super countercultural for women to have the same roles. So maybe mm. maybe Paul is just kind of wanting to not rock the boat too much, and let's kind of go with the way we do things, and we don't want to freak people out or... Mm either side of the equation it could be that well if if women have certain roles like men might be embarrassed by that and here's their wife speaking or women too might be this is really odd for us this is so you could you could look at as paul just saying listen let's kind of go with the cultural norms Mm -hmm. but to me what really clinches is paul is really good at at making a statement and then also kind of anticipating an argument against it Mm -hmm. and then giving the reasons for what he said and obviously here he's not kind of in that argumentative debate kind of discussion, but he does give a reason. And his reason isn't cultural. He says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became the transgressor. So his his uh, reasons given for this view was rooted in creation, which never changes. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's just a difficult passage because... First of all, it seems like we do have a new creation in Christ, mm-hmm. and so which Paul also says. Yeah. And uh, and then also, I've heard different interpretations of the Adam and Eve story anyway in the tr- right. in original sin and how. Yes, it was Eve 
and maybe this would actually be an argument for complementarianism in the end, that Eve was deceived, but Adam wasn't doing his job either and actually blamed her. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and so, like, to to just say it's all Eve's fault and therefore all of women throughout the rest of history need to be quiet, that seems a little bit reductive. Yeah. A little bit. Yeah, as you're reading that verse, I mean, again, this is just not my favorite passage because it's so hard to swallow. It's just, okay, so if man is supposed to be the leader, but then Eve sinned first, but then she went to her husband and he did the same exact thing, like, why is it all on us? He was supposed to be there to mm-hmm. whatever, yeah. whatever, whatever. And it was his job to guard the garden. Yeah. But then, of course, that that is also brisking against, like, feminism. Like, well, he, you know, women don't need that. Whatever. But <laughs> right, right, right. it's a whole different conversation. Yeah. But I have some difficulties. Not that it's because I want to be anti-scripture or I don't want to have a posture of humility to what God is saying. It's just yeah. hard to understand Totally. Everything that you just said, was it cultural? Was it like Paul just saying, this is how I like to do it? But if you were saying creation is rooted in history, it is eternal because creation is such a uh, fundamental doctrine of our faith, at least for conservatives or in that reformed uh, tradition, because it's still, when it's you still take hard. it just like that, it sounds like what he's saying is like, well, women need to be quiet because they're the ones that are always getting men into trouble, yeah. <laughs> like starting with Eve and Adam. And that I know, I know that that particular verse, like a lot of bad things have been justified against women because of that totally. verse, you know. Yeah. And so that's a little bit also what makes it hard to swallow is that, yeah. you know, this the same way that people could justify slavery with scripture. Yeah. And I get that. And, you know, and I'll say too, like, I'm also pretty, I'm like very sympathetic to the other side on this. And I'm like, I get it. And, you know, if, if this wasn't in the Bible and your pastor got up there and said, listen, this is why we do this, because Adam was created first and women's, you know, Eve sinned first. You'd be like, whoa. Yeah. yeah. All right, buddy. But yeah, here it is. So, yeah. and you know, if I'm wrong, then I, I hope to be corrected on this. Yeah. But we have to do it like it's yeah. right there. And so I think, you know, again, going just back to like, OK, how do I filter this through the character of God mm-hmm. and understanding why well, I know God's heart for people isn't to. To, to be diminutive or to put down one group of people over another, one sex or another, one race or another. Like he cares, he's indiscriminatory in that way. So if that's God's heart and he wants the best for us and he loves us, and if I believe this is God's word to us, okay, how do I read that through that lens of, of this is loving? How, it doesn't seem like it's loving to me, then I got to dig into it more. And there are plenty of passages that are like on their face are like, ugh, that's tough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know how to take that in what seems like a carefree, grace-filled way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it, if it's from God, it is. Yeah. So I've there's been a number of passages that I've dealt with in my life that are like, I this is weird. This passage is weird. Yeah. And then I, what's helped me is just I'm not going to give up until this isn't weird anymore. Yeah. And then not a hundred percent, but usually eventually through study through reading commentaries, there is a moment where like, oh my gosh, I, I, I do understand that now, at least to a degree that's like, okay, that makes sense to me. Mm. Um, well, I think some people yeah. justify that weirdness by just, by attributing it to cultural context, you know? Yeah. Totally. Um, and even the next verse is, is hard for me. Like, yeah, it's one of the hardest be, verses in the whole Bible. She will be yeah. saved through childbearing. And it's like, yeah. how can you say that, say that? Right. Right. When, like, there are other passages where Paul talks about being saved only through Christ, you know? Yeah. So well, let's, uh, let's, <laughs> let's, let's let's hear it. Let's hear yeah. it. What, that verse? Yeah. Okay, so just to kind of overlap here. So it goes on. So Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Um, and literally, when you so read no yeah, when me. you read books on this, it's like literally like renowned scholars would be like, it's tough. Because again, hopefully thinking like, okay, scripture is coherent and it agrees with himself. Paul's not going to just write things that are totally opposite of what he just said. Clearly, we're all saved through Christ. And there's still some mystery here, but there's this idea that also plays into this kind of whole, like everything's connected idea of, of federal headship. And that ultimately Christ is our federal head. So it's like the representative uh, figure is the federal head. So Adam is referred to as, as like the first man and like, like Jesus is like the second Adam or the new man. Mm-hmm. So we all are born with original sin through the sin of Adam. Mm-hmm. And that obviously like we're going back to the Adam and Eve stuff there, mm-hmm. but like, 
even though Paul's saying, well, Eve, Eve sinned first. Like Adam, though, is our federal head, and it is through his sin that we all inherit and are born with that, that sin nature. And if we are under Adam, if Adam is my federal head, then I am represented by that sin nature that he has passed down to me. And whether I like that or not, I'm his descendant. I am, I am from him. Mm-hmm. And in Christ, and I deserve death. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life mm-hmm. through grace, right? So when you're in Christ, Christ is now my federal head, and now he represents me. Mm-hmm. And I get what's coming to him, which mm-hmm. is life. Mm-hmm. And through him, I, I'm saved and forgiven and in, in the good graces of God and loved by him and called a friend mm-hmm. when I was an enemy. So this idea of federal headship, Sometimes it seems offensive, but we love the grace part where Christ is our federal head. And there's a, and I'm not, I don't know if I'm knowledgeable about this enough to like pick this whole thing apart, but yeah. I think there is a sense in which I'm, the husband is, is a sort of federal head for his family. But yeah, I mean, it just seems like there's a difference between saying like, well, this is yeah. the way that man and woman were created. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should respect that and take those lessons for how we should live our lives. And then saying like, well, this is what happened between that man and that woman. Sure. And, you know, you know, because the original sin, like we do have an answer to that. And that's Christ, you right. know, and I've heard, you know, Christ is a new Adam. And then Mary has been referred to the new as the new Eve because <laughs> no, you yeah. just, you just grim it. <laughs> no, but because it's like Eve's disobedience and then Mary's acceptance of, of Christ, of God's mission for her. Sure. Um, and, and saying yes to, to giving birth to, to Jesus. Right. And there's some cool, I love this idea of symmetry in scripture yeah. too. Like if a screenwriter wrote, wrote it, it's like there's some awesome yeah, yeah, totally. themes and symmetry in there that, again, reminds me of physical object, just like amazing through lines and symmetry yeah. between Christ and Adam. And yeah, it's, it's fun stuff. So that's what I just, it's, and anyway, we can move on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to spend all day. I know, it's going to yeah, be like just seven talking. hours. Um, but it's good. So I've just got one more verse that deals mostly with, with church life. And, and again, just in, I don't know if this is the main context of this passage, but the one I just read, some of these things are, are not, it doesn't mean like no woman can exercise authority over any man. I would be fine with a woman president. There were female judges and you'll test like, yeah. that's yeah, not, a, that's not a thing. Are like... It's not about that. It's not about ability to, to lead or, oh, a, a man should never look up to a woman. That's not at all the complementarian case but it's specifically in the roles of a husband and wife relationship or in a church life. So the last verse is in Titus chapter 1, 5, and 6. He says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. So Paul is like church planted there, and he's like, okay, this is, get set up, and this is my recommendation. This is what you ought to do. And he says, Appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And he goes on again. But again, there's the husband of one wife uh, statement there. And again, there's there's more. There's other verses in there. But these are kind of the big three that are often brought up. And there's so many other things that are relevant. But to me, when, when you read this stuff, I mean, again, maybe maybe we're wrong about every single one of these. But if you just took this, these statements out of, you know, out of context and, and substituted man and woman for like the color yellow and red, and let's let's say uh, men are yellow and women are red. And you were just to say, which color seems to be represented to play this role? And our emotions were taken out of it. I think you, you pretty clearly see a pattern here for, for the design of these two, how these colors interact. And it's hard for me to, to come to these scriptures and say, oh, there's no differentiation going on. It seems to me there clearly is. Mm-hmm. And, if, and of, of course there can be abuse of that as well. And maybe just to bring up, you kind of brought up this passage earlier, and I, and I, I hope to do my best to, to represent egalitarians well here, and I stand to be corrected if I, if I don't. But one of the main verses that an egalitarian will use to kind of say, but, but what about this? How would you reconcile what you just said with this? Is Galatians 3.28. And I'm actually read this whole passage so we can see the flow of, of what, what's, what point is he making. Uh, and it begins, now before faith came, oh, yeah, we were held... Oh, yeah, that was going to bring up. Yeah, right. okay, yeah. <laughs> before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no, there is no male or female. For you are all in, one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So the main verse there that's brought up is 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. So the argument there is like, okay, well, since Christ, like, there is no male. Like, we are all literally, you know, of course we're men and women. And everyone's going to admit we have different general kind of roles in life and different ways about us. But when it comes to the church, they would say there is no male or female. We are equivalent. There is no delineation of roles or anything. And... A, that's out of context for like his point in this passage to say we are all one in Christ. When it comes to faith, he's talking about salvation, soteriology, that we're all on level playing ground. Like there, There's no benefit to being a man or a woman or slave or free, black or white, Asian, Middle Eastern. It doesn't matter. You were all one in Christ, and it, but, it, but the point is faith, and he's not talking about gender roles. It would be odd for him to make this statement, but then go on to describe a lot of gender-specific commands. Because we, we do have this, and it's absolutely true. And yet this same author will then go on to talk about, hey, in, in marriage life, this this is this is what's healthy. Yeah. This is mm-hmm. God's design. In church life, this is God's design. Yeah. I don't think he's confused. And I think when we when we use that to speak to that issue mm-hmm. specifically, I think it's taken out of context. Yeah, mm-hmm. no, I think that's well put. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> I think kind of a cool place to go from here this, yeah, this this is more in like the marriage relationships category. Just to kind of give a summary, and then maybe we can we can come back to verses. I kind of just made a list of like just to pull out simple statements for husbands and wives. Mm-hmm. And for husbands, what we find in these passages is that the authority comes from the creation order. That the head of man is Christ, the woman's head is husband, and ultimately Christ. Mm-hmm. His encouragement to husbands is to love your wife as Christ does the church. There's this idea of federal headship that's present. And for wives, his encouragement is to, to dress respectively and modestly, to love your husbands, to live a life of good works, of purity, and, and just you know a, a life to be admired, to learn in submission. He talks about not exercising authority over uh, your husband or in church, and to submit to the husband. Super popular, super popular <laughs> kind of things to say uh, mm-hmm. from anyone. But the, there's a passage here that, that I, sometimes it's obviously it's, it's, it's in the discussion, but to me is so pivotal. Again, going to this symmetry, everything's connected idea is in first Corinthians 11, verse three. He says, but I want you to understand that the head of every man, uh, every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So he, he sets up this relationship between man and wife together and also between men and women in Christ himself. And I don't have this passage here, but there's also, that's also linked to... Head coverings? That's, yeah, we could get into that. That'd be super <laughs> See, that's what I want to ask, because right. it's like directly after yeah. that, he said it'd yeah. be better for a woman to have her head right. shaved than to pray with her head uncovered. And it's like, I see nobody, yeah, sure. except for like a very, very small subsection of the church covering yeah. their head. And so it's like, why is it like, yes, verse A is 100% mm. true, verse B that directly follows it, not true. Yeah. Totally gotcha. Yeah, let's let's talk about it. Okay. Do you mind if I fin- finish? Yeah, go ahead and finish. Though? Yeah. Sorry. Just as an overdraw. <laughs> so there is this relationship set up between God and man and husband mm-hmm. and wife, and and that's like there's like a arrows. You can kind of follow the arrows there. And again, I'm super sympathetic to this idea, but it's like that seems kind of off. Like why I'm just born a woman and all of a sudden I'm in this position of mm-hmm. subordination if I get married or yeah. in, in church, and that doesn't seem very equal. It doesn't seem very Jesus. Mm-hmm. But to pull away from that, I think an amazing, it's not an, I wouldn't even call it an illustration, but to look at the Trinity itself, is we as Christians, like if you're an Orthodox, Bible-believing Christian, Trinitarian, we believe that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are all persons, distinct and yet one God. They're all Yahweh. And we believe that, again, there's this word ontology, meaning like nature of being. So they're all equal, like they are ontologically on the same level, all fully God. And yet, within the Trinity, they play different roles. And that Jesus was the one specifically in that relationship to go down, to humble himself, to die for us, become our high priest, eternal high priest, 
and become the God-man and die and be punished and to serve. And the father is up there remaining father authority. That seems unfair too. We don't pity Jesus. We don't say, ah, oh, poor Jesus, that sucks for him. You know, like that was an honor and what an incredible yeah. life and, and, and function he has within the Trinity. And if we were all, if we were like kind of all other Jesuses, we might be like, well, why are we the Jesuses? Like, why don't I want to be the father? But it's like his role is incredible and we, we glorify him for that. And so there's a relationship there that is analogous and is, and is tied into a marriage and church relationship. And we want to keep that Trinitarian dynamic, but change the marriage and church dynamic as if they're not connected. And I think they clearly are. So, but so how that, well, how that relates. Yeah. Well, he says that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every wife is her husband and the head of Christ is God. So he's referencing Christ's relationship to the father in reference to man and wife's relationship to him mm-hmm. and how that's played out in the church. So I think they're tied together in pretty distinct ways. And again, this idea of federal headship comes into effect. And the role of Christ to the church, like, you know, the church is called his bride. And so we can look at, okay, if we're going to model, if we're going to try and model this kind of stuff, it's like, well, if, if Christ is kind of metaphorically the husband of the church, what did that look like? Well, what he did, he has authority in the church. We, we do not say, well, Christ is clearly the head of the church. We all submit to him. However, what has he done with that authority? He's laid down his life mm-hmm. and given himself even to death for her. That doesn't mean he kind of was timid about it. Like he taught, he had authority, but he loved ferociously and gave himself up for her. And that's scripture's call for a husband as well. It's not to lord over, and that's another passage that comes up is, he teaches his disciples not to lord over what the authority they have. And to me, in, especially in marriage, biblical manhood means taking what authority God has given you and laying it down to serve your family, to honor them. And to also set, to me, the leadership mainly means setting a tone of encouraging, of investing in your family, into godliness, into uh, into holiness, into, into a Jesus-centered life and saying, I want to do my best to serve you wife to take care of my children to love you guys what can i do and i want to make sure i'm setting the tone for that and the the wife obviously does as well but in the end kind of in that vein of where does the buck stop it's like well in the end christ christ is the one who died for us and we emulate him and it's all about him but men are encouraged to to mimic his lifestyle in their family and in the church and and also i mean i've heard that argument too it's it's not just yeah, but it's also the model of servant leadership that Jesus taught. You yeah, know, of absolutely. Like the way that he taught his disciples mm-hmm. to be leaders mm-hmm. is was that, to serve. Yeah, the greatest that, among you is the servant. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah, right. Well, I think we were actually going to like what we were about the coverings of the head and yeah. like all of that. Like why, like Mary Ashley said, these are the verse before is mm-hmm. absolute truth. Da da da. I mean, are we not? Then to literally take, like, the next verse. Yeah. The next. No, part, I don't see anybody. Yeah. So well, it is talked just... about, just not. It's not like prime time. It's not fun. Yeah. <laughs> and a, a lot of people. I mean, are, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I know people that do wear veils in church. You know, yeah. and, and this is part of why. But it, you know, that's definitely not the majority. Yeah, I I almost never hear about this verse ever. Yeah. Like maybe four times in my life that we're actually giving it attention and talking about it. And so. then also, like I've known many guys that have prayed with hats on their heads you know because like mm-hmm. literally so just my well any man who prays or prophesies with something on his head disgraces his head but any woman who prays or prophesies with her head unveiled disgraces her head it is one and the same thing as having her head shaved for mm-hmm. a well, if a woman will not veil herself then she should cut off her hair but if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or to be shaved she should wear a veil for a man ought not to have his head veiled since he is the image and reflection of god but woman is the reflection of man Indeed, man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for the sake of woman, but a woman for the sake of man. Then it's the, for this reason, a woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Right. Super and, clear. I don't know. Where are you confused here? <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Laura, where is your head veil? Um, I think I'll shave no, my head. She is wearing one, actually. I don't, you guys can't see. <laughs> it's called headphones um, for her podcast. Yeah, there's a lot there. You know what? I don't want to spend too much time because then yeah. it, we're getting into a different topic. But I can't. I can't answer. explain all this, and I'm yeah. not going to admit yeah. that. Okay, yeah. some of this stuff's difficult. Yeah, yeah. Can yeah. I read the next? Sure. Because sure. <laughs> okay, so then it's like 
Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man or man independent of woman. Okay, I can get on the board that. That's fine. But for just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, but all God, things come from God. All right? Mm-hmm. Judge for yourself. <laughs> but then, next verse. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head unveiled? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is degrading to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if anyone is disposed to be contentious, we have no such custom, nor do the churches of God. Okay. Well, what I what I think we should do is definitely have a episode just about biblical womanhood. Find <laughs> okay. somebody right. that knows how to explain all of this because the three of us are very confused. Yeah. Right. Can I do like thirty seconds on that? Please do. Yeah, please. please. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm not claiming curious. to like for, for, you know fully understand all this. The the verse ten. So I studied religious studies in college. It was not seminary, but it was more like a history degree, but it was religion. And so we got to hear lots of ideas, and they're not all good. But there were certain traditions around angels, and that even like that angels would violate women in such ways. Sometimes people speculate that head coverings had to do with almost protection from being influenced. You know, there's some stuff in there that's like, well, like... Oh, very superstitious. Yeah, and... I'm not sure if that's what he's referring to or referencing there or not. And hmm. this is, I think some of this is cultural. And again, some hardline complementarians might say, no, we ha- yeah, you should wear a head covering. Yeah. I disagree with that. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they're wrong. I don't know. But I, I don't think I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have the position I have. I guess we all think that. But some of this is cultural in that, like, if in your culture, and there's other passages he talks about, like women, like don't adorn yourselves with jewelry and all these perfumes. There's nothing in, we know for a fact. Again, going back to the nature of God, having gold touch your skin does not violate God's nature in some way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But so why would he say something like that? He says, let your adornment be you know, your good works, your purity, like your conduct is again in that day, like many of the only w- women you saw out and about wearing jewelry were prostitutes. And so if you're going to adorn yourself, you're kind of sending a message of this is the mm-hmm. way I am. Mm-hmm. So, and same with hair length. And, and, and he does reference nature and maybe there's some objectivity there. But he is trying to encourage people to, within your culture, to present yourselves in a way that glorifies God. In the same way today, we would encourage women to show up to church in like really short miniskirts. Mm-hmm. It's just not appropriate. Mm. It doesn't mean you're not a Christian, but it, you'd probably get pulled aside and say, hey, that's maybe not the best thing to wear. Or if you were to meet the president, you wouldn't show up in flip-flops and shirtless in, like, you know, uh, your swimsuit. Yeah. Right. I mean, I was talking about a dude right there, like yeah. a guy. I wouldn't wear flip-flops and, and a swimsuit. So there is a measure of respect that's meant to be shown in church and, sure. and just adorning yourself well. And I think he's referencing their culture and saying this is how we would do that. Yeah. Yeah, it's all very complicated, very hard, and, yeah. uh, but fascinating, <laughs> fascinating nonetheless. Um, please continue. Yeah, I love like just talking about because these are all the hard hitting. Like these are the ver- go to verses yeah. that we we talk about. So Ephesians five, he says, uh, "Wives submit to your own husbands." And again, he says, "Your own husband, not to all husbands, um, but within your marriage relationship, wife submit to your husband as to the Lord." For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Kind of referencing what we were talking about earlier. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. So there's a few things there. There's the submission thing, which we've talked about. There's the relationship between Christ and the church and man and wife, which I think is, you know, is obviously connected. And that Christ is is in the is in the business of sanctifying his people, sanctifying his church, and his, his encouragement to husbands is to bless your wife. Obviously, I, I'm single, but if I was married, obviously I cannot control my wife's heart. But my my hope would be to bless her and to do everything in my power to just to be an encouragement to her to myself live in such a way that if she were to model my life, that that would hopefully be a good direction. So mm-hmm. to, to live in a way that encourages her and to also speak life to her, just as Christ speaks life to the church. Um, good. First Peter 3, uh, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, maybe be one that 
they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And he says later, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. She'll honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even re- like reading the weaker vessel, mm-hmm. it's kind of uncomfortable. Kind of taboo. It super is. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm a normal mm-hmm. guy. It's like, ugh. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, he might literally even mean physically. I don't, you know, but I think, again, generally his encouragement to wives is often submit and honor, respect your husband's. Men, love, care for, pursue your wives, love them, care for them, be tender with them. And he, this is kind of countercultural because, you know, to whatever degree we fully understand it, this was a very patriarchal society. Typically, men could divorce their wife for almost any reason. If they don't cook well, whatever, they're just like, they can be out. And that's super unhealthy. And Paul is addressing, like, husbands, love your wife, mm-hmm. respect her, honor her. Mm-hmm. Don't speak badly about her in public. Like, lift her up. Yeah. And that was, I don't want to say people would hear that and be like, oh, gross. But like, they weren't calling themselves to that standard at all. Mm-hmm. And here comes Christ and, and, and the apostles saying, no, like, let's be healthy. Honor each other. And, and even I think, you know, again, everyone's different. But generally, men do want to be respected. And, if, and women want to, they want to say, I respect my husband. If you don't respect your husband... There's a lot of brokenness there. Mm-hmm. And of course women want it. And men want to be loved. And of course women want to be respected too. But I think more in our core, women do desire to be cherished and mm-hmm. loved mm-hmm. And, and just adored. Mm-hmm. And I want that to be true when I'm married. And I, want, I hope my wife respects me. And if any of those two are broken down, there's going to be discord. And he calls men and women to sleep with each other often. Like come together. Don't deprive one of each other. And he, and he says, men, your body belongs to your wife. And hers to you, not just not just one way, which mm-hmm. is probably more normal than is whenever the man wants it, he gets it, and the woman, if she wants it, he's like, tough. I'm not in the mood. Um, but <laughs> but his but his uh, his encouragement is like definitely at this togetherness that was way above and beyond the culture of the time. So, mm. not that that explains away some of these other difficult statements, but again, just going back to what's God's heart for this relationship, His desire is certainly health and respect, mutual respect. Um, that's great. I which, think. which is something that we don't find in Adam and Eve, I think, you know, of the Adam. mutual respect? Yeah. When the transgression happened, Adam was like, oh, well, totally not me. It was all her. Yeah. You know, yeah. and he accepted no responsibility for himself. And that's awful. Yeah. Yeah. And it wasn't also, like, being respectful of her and, and like, how he, he, like, what he was there, like what his role was in their relationship too, you mm-hmm. know, of like yeah. in yeah. terms of quote unquote true manhood. Yeah. 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 yeah I was just, you know, and, and again, I'm, I am pretty like convinced of the complimentary, like this is what the Bible teaches. Again, I'm super sympathetic to the objections against it that seem pretty awkward. So even what I'm about to say, it's like, ugh, okay, just say it. Cause it's in the Bible. It's like, the, there's a few books about this. I'm forgetting the, the name of this one that is often recommended. But at, like, it's, it was Adam's, what Adam did was he abdicated authority and he, and he just sloughed off responsibility right. and blamed her and was also absent. Like he did it yeah. all wrong. And that's, again, generally the temptation for men is to abdicate authority and to be lazy and just if someone else will sign up to do it, great, let them do it. Mm. Yeah. And, and, we haven't brought this up. I don't think we're going to get into this today, but there's also a lot of discussion around the curse and how some of these gender roles might actually not be God's design, but are a result of the curse. And so we shouldn't mm. celebrate curse yeah. fruit. Oh, right. um, but, you know, putting that aside for a second is that... Which is what, that, what, honestly, though, that is what yeah. this verse kind of evokes for me. That, like, she will be saved through childbirth, but, like, in the Garden of Eden, that's what God tells Eve, like labor is going to be really yeah. painful for you and that's going to be your curse for you know right and you it, it, it's two it's it's childbearing will be more painful and that secondly you will strive after basically the authority of man mm-hmm. which again is like uncomfortable to say it, it almost assumes there's some authority that you don't have that you will seek out and try to and you will try and take over mm-hmm. and men's temptation is to give it away and be like i don't care um, but then there's also like the serpent ma- will be coming like you, yep. you know, yeah. there will be enmity. And man's, and man's curse is like he already worked. You know, God, 
created mm-hmm. them in the garden to work. Work is good, but now it would be by the sweat of his brow and against thorns. Like it's going to be tough now. And we don't find similar language about the curse of man where we try to encourage people to work without sweating or something. It seems mm-hmm. kind of awkward. Like, yeah. I don't know when that would ever come up, but it's like, <laughs> yeah. if we're going to talk about one, talk about both. And it's like, anyway, um, that's a whole nother. Sorry, kind of rabbit, but sorry, trail, I didn't yeah. mean to, to okay. sidetrack you, but no, I, I think, um, I mean, we had a lot to talk about. We went through a lot of things that I think often come up in this discussion about complementarianism, egalitarianism. So just leaving the doctrine aside, I really want to just ask as our, as a closing question, why does it really matter how we view relationships in this context and each other in these ways? In relationship, whether you're egalitarian or complementarianism, like why is it important for us to understand where we stand? Or yeah. is it important? Yeah. Or, you know? I think it is because I, going back to kind of, I don't know if we started here or not, but near the, the start I said, I think it's important we start with any, any spiritual question. Has God spoken to this issue? Mm-hmm. And if he has, what has he said? And if it's tough, seek to understand that. Mm-hmm. And I think I think it's clear in Scripture that God cares about a human relationships, and b He cares about how He is worshipped. Mm-hmm. And again, I, I think we can draw parallels. It's not the, the, this really easy through line, but like when He had them design the temple, He's like, "I want you to make it this size. Mm-hmm. I want artisans to do this, and with this wood." Like He obviously, in His own character, does care about how He's worshipped, and I think He still does. Yeah. To say there are no rules, and you know we're going to choose to say gender doesn't play a role, I think is to ignore, possibly, that God might have an opinion about this, and I think he's expressed it. Mm-hmm. And I think for us to, because we're uncomfortable, or it's countercultural, or you might be perceived a certain way, I'm not saying that that's why egalitarians make that issue, but if that, if that is your reason, it's just uncomfortable, I would hope that our hardest is to listen to God's view on things. And I think we all have experiences in life of, in essence, we're saying, God, I know this is what you say, but I'm going to do what I want. I think maybe I know better mm-hmm. on this. And that's kind of was Adam's sin. I have to talk about this because I love it. Like the, <laughs> the tree he, that they ate of was the knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. That, that's not just kind of a fun nickname. And I love the parallel here. It's essentially, what he was saying is that, God, you have revealed to me what's right and wrong there's only one rule at that point was don't eat of this this one tree called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and for adam to eat of that tree is to say i would like to be the one for myself to decide what is good and evil Mm -hmm. Uh, and the serpent says you'll be like gods yeah he's like oh now i can be the one to decide for myself i don't want to submit to you so we have adam living naked at this time living without sin um (laughs) with with eve and in a great marriage and in this garden, coming to a tree, saying, "Not my, your will be done, but my will be done. And then we have Christ, also living a perfect life, then in a garden, says mm-hmm. to God, not my will be done, but your will be done. Awesome. And then is hung on a tree. And Adam, his sin, he tried to cover it himself with leaves. And then the first animal sacrifice was given. God killed an animal and used its skin to cover them. So they mm-hmm. were covered, their shame was covered by an act of God. Mm-hmm. And at Christ, who said, not my will, but your will, was laid naked and was not covered. Um, and wrath was poured out upon him. I think, awesome. And again, there's this, all this amazing symmetry. And even though maybe it wasn't that clear just there, I think this, this relates to God's design for men and women relationships. Um, that even if it's counterintuitive or might be tough for specific couples or specific communities, if it is indeed God's design, it is better. And it is... And if he cares about how he's worshipped, and this is his preference, I think we have to seek it out. And again, I know egalitarians would say, many of them, especially if they're well-educated about say, no, I, I, I do love scripture, and I think it, has, it teaches an egalitarian view. I'm not saying that they don't care about scripture. Mm-hmm. To me, though, when you look at it, it's the color of it seems to be very much consistent with the complementarian view. But so yeah. how would you... Um... Because I, I was just reading a review of a book by a woman who was a pastor's wife and was abused, uh, physically abused by her husband. Mm-hmm. Basically, the review that I was saying is, first of all, complementarianism is confusing in general because there do seem to be different brands or flavors of it. Mm-hmm. And mo- the reaction when people say, oh, but 
when you, you know, you could use this to justify all kinds of abuse. Mm-hmm. Most of the reactions, see, like John Piper and other, like, big complementarians seems to be, well, that's not true complementarianism. Right. But then it's like, well... How do you if, know? How, yeah. <laughs> how do you know? And, like, what safeguard is there? Mm-hmm. Like, how how can we approach this conversation... And I do think, like, oh, well, marrying Christ and the church is a great starting point because obviously yeah. Christ would not abuse be, his church. Yeah, yeah, be abusive in any way. Right. But I guess, how can we be clear about this and about rules mm. to ensure that we abuse doesn't happen? I think it's it's got to be scripture. It it always has to be. I was gonna say knowledge. I think is a great safeguard because I think a lot of the times what happens is that you don't know where the line is based on tradition. I mean, even even going back to earlier what we were saying, like I grew up in this tradition, but like where are the lines? Where are the boundaries? And certainly, if I don't learn about this stuff and see what scripture says to my detriment, maybe I allow my husband, if he was extremely men, I mean, Derek's not like that, but you know, like if, you know, a lot put myself in a position to not know, like, this is what God actually designed, but I'm just letting myself be a pushover or a doormat because I don't know. And, um, and that's not to say that, of course, there are very smart women and men have, have been abused and do know scripture to a certain degree. I think... It's knowledge, and then it's also the counsel of many, you know, like mm-hmm. bringing in people you trust and to speak into that relationship, to speak into your own life of, like, why things are going the way they're going, or if you feel, I feel like for any subject, if you feel like this is, there's something wrong in my spirit about what is happening and somebody's using scripture against me, there's other people other than that person yeah. that you can go to and ask about mm-hmm. it. But that also involves the community being open and yes, being willing to have an opened open heart about the situation, sure. and and people also being willing to let the community into their private lives. Yeah, it, it's both ways, and I think a lot of the basis of why we started this podcast. Sometimes the church isn't as open with certain things and but I would encourage us as the church to be open and to entrust people to be let into our lives, into those, you know, you don't have to tell the whole church, but, you know, trust the people that you trust. Find a couple of people that you really do entrust as a friend to give you good counsel, good scriptural counsel. And it's just growth, I think, on both sides, the church and the people of the church, you know. we Because Paul also writes about us being accountable to each other. Yes. And being held mm-hmm. accountable, you know, and... yeah. I, I think that that can also be complimentary yeah. <laughs> to everything that he said about. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think, you know, we're all sinners, and there I think there are pastors out there who are not saved. They're, yeah. they're like yeah. the authority, and they're in this position, and they yeah. don't know Jesus. And it's also true that if we know Jesus, we still mess up. And Absolutely. We, and mm-hmm. there's no absolutely zero support in Scripture for any kind of abuse, and anyone who is, who is doing that is, should be ashamed of themselves. I think a humble heart before God, mm. if, if you're like, oh, I think I'm abusing my wife and that's okay. Like, what? Like, yeah. that is not the posture of a heart submitted to the Lord. Yeah. And you can you can probably find some verse you can twist to support anything. Like, it was done with slavery. Yeah. But that's certainly not the teaching of Scripture. And it's not And just like you could say, mm-hmm. well, you Christians believe in grace, so I can live whatever, like, live however I want. And right. it doesn't matter. It's All like, my sins nah. are raised. There is that, but, like, you'd be like, no, you don't. That's not it. Yeah. You know? And that's not And you can grace. twist anything. And, um, again, the filter of, is this, is this honoring to God? Is this match God's heart? Is yeah. this how Christ modeled his life for the church? No way. He laid it down and, and, and served and, and gave himself up for the benefit of the other. I love, so John 3.16 is this, you know, well-known passage, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten mm-hmm. son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have eternal life. If you break that down, there's three parts. It's So it's like the thing that God does, it says, for God so loved. So like everything he does is motivated by love. What does he do with the love? He lays his life down for the other, for the benefit of the other having life. That's what Jesus did. Through love, give of myself for life of other. And that ought to be for men and women. Like that, that should be our filter for relationships. Like, how can I bless you? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know. 
So I think that's a wonderful way to end. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Paul. That's a yeah. lot. You know, if anyone has any questions, please send it our way. Certainly, we can spend hours and hours and hours on all of yeah, these things. Yeah, I feel things. like we scratched the surface. Yeah. 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 But I think it's good. Again, uh, it's always our purpose to start a conversation and hopefully discussion happens in our communities. So if you have any questions, comments, or feedback, please email us at fishersofmenpodcast at gmail.com or on our website at fishersofmenpodcast.com. We are also found on Facebook under Fishers of Men and on Twitter as LA Gone Fishing. So please rate and make comments on iTunes or whatever device that you use for apps because it would be really cool. Anyway, I'm Larsa Merritt. I'm Mary Ashley Burton. Paul Moorhead. <laughs> Until next time, keep swimming.